Today, I'm joined by Seth Whitelaw, who has had a lengthy career in healthcare compliance. First, a word from Nick about the ethics verse. In a world where compliance often hinges on anonymous reports, Ethico stands apart with the lowest industry anonymous rate. We believe in building connections, understanding each report's context, and in creating an environment where every voice is valued. Our approach is not just about collecting data. It's about fostering a culture where transparency and trust lead to more effective compliance. See the difference at ethico.com cpn. Book a demo and use our free ROI calculator to transform how you handle anonymous reports. You can also download our white paper by Tom Fox, The ROI of Compliance. It's time to turn anonymity into a strength and not a barrier in your compliance efforts. Join us in shaping a future where every concern is addressed with the care and attention it deserves. If you're interested in a quick compliance tip of the day, check out my newest podcast entitled Compliance Tip of the Day on the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode, and I'm absolutely thrilled today to have with me Seth Whitelaw. Seth, first of all, welcome, but thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me today. Oh, thank you for having me, Tom. I'm thrilled to be here. Seth, proving once again that there is no one in compliance who is more than three steps away from any of us, we have many common connections and things that we have both jointly done over the year, but this is years, but this is the first time we've been able to do a podcast. So with that, could you tell our audience about your professional background? Oh, sure. As I like to tell people, Tom, I'm an overeducated lawyer and compliance officer. I am am a food and drug lawyer by training. That's how I started out in the medical device world. I got into compliance by accident when the company I was working for barred at the time. Um, settled with the government, and at that time it was known as a plea agreement. It's what we would call today a a corporate integrity agreement that established a compliance officer and compliance program. And I was assigned to be the new compliance officer and to create their program for them. Sounds like the story of uh, many of us at that time, but uh, you've continued that going forward. So could you bring us forward to today? Yep. Today I am, I run my own compliance consulting company focusing mainly on smaller to mid-sized companies, the folks that are, that need help, but sometimes have trouble getting attention of other big firms. I was up until this week, the editor of the policy and medicine compliance update. Unfortunately, that publication has ceased um, to be published. And I also teach law school for Mitchell Hamlin School of Law, St. Paul. It's a remote obviously remote because I'm in Pennsylvania. And this semester I am teaching undergraduates at St. Joseph's University on the legal aspects of drug and device development and sales and marketing. Seth, when I did more compliance consulting work, I tended to have companies that were perhaps big enough to have a general counsel, but not big enough to have a chief compliance officer and I would either be their outsourced chief compliance officer or help them create a a compliance program structure and then instruct the GC on how to administer that. Would that be similar to what you do or a different direction for your consulting? No, it's very similar, Tom, to what I do. I think the primary difference is, unlike you, most of the clients I work for don't even have an in-house GC. They're They're smaller or in the development cycle such that they're primarily relying on outside counsel and 
So they don't have a GC, they don't have a law department, they certainly don't have a compliance department. I often get asked the question, Seth, when should a company start paying attention to compliance? And my answer is generally along the lines of, I see compliance as a type of financial controls, and I hope you have financial controls, because anyone who looks at you for investment, for a joint venture partner, or even being a supplier, I want to know about your financial controls. It's a long-winded way of saying as soon as possible. Do you get asked that question? And if so, how do you answer that? I frequently get asked that question, Tom. I answer it exactly the same way as soon as possible. Usually, though, for my clients, they want to be a little bit more specific. So I will, I usually say, look, let's look at the events that are going to occur in your company's life and we can start to talk about it from there. For example, if you're going out to seek venture capital and seek input, then you're going to need to start getting a compliance program because that's what the investors are looking for these days. They're looking for some assurance that the money that they're going to put into your company uh, isn't going to go up in smoke because you've run into a compliance issue. Um, But typically, most of my clients tend to um, wait until around phase two in the clinical development process. They've got a pretty good idea they're going into phase three, and they're pretty sure they're going to get marketing approval sometime in, say, two to three years down the road. You have a phrase on your website that I wanted to ask you about, and that's sustainable integrity. What does that mean to you, Seth? As I look at the ethics and compliance programs, it is all about integrity. But as the DOJ and others have highlighted, the program has to work, and it can't just be a one, it's not just a once and done. So the idea, what I was trying to convey is that this is a work in progress. It's a journey. It's not a destination. And it needs to be sustainable in the sense that it needs to fit with the company's objectives. It needs to fit with the company's budget. It needs to fit with the legal and regulatory requirements. But in the end, it, once you set it up, it will continue on through the life of the company. Seth, I often give uh, the following example. And I started for a long time practice in the energy space. And in the energy arena, there was a lot of drive from companies literally at the top, the Exxons, the Shells, the Chevrons, to force anyone they did business with to have a compliance program. And I would give this example. I had a company that had one software product. It was worth $15 million. And I kept telling these, and they were too small to have their own sales force. And I kept telling these guys, look, if you want any investment, if you want one of the big boys to do something with you, you're going to have a compliance program. And literally, I finally was able to convince them that and put together a a small program for them. And literally two weeks later, one of the big boys came and wanted to make what we called in the software world funded development or invest. And the second thing they asked for was we want to see your compliance program. Is that similar to your client base when they go out for funding or is it something different? No, it's exactly the same thing. It, it just uh, my client base will either go down the private funding route, the true angel investor kind of route, or to your point, there are a lot of bigger big pharma that will ultimately invest in a company or want to take on a product 
and then market it and sell it for them because they all, all they want to do is research and development. But either way, the requirement to have a, a compliance program is becoming the standard and the norm out there. Look, at the end of the day, the bottom line is neither of the investors, whether they be big pharma or private investors, want to be embarrassed. This is a lot of it is about reputation. They don't want this to come back and become part of the news cycle that they invested in a company and the company is now under investigation or indictment or going into bankruptcy because of compliance missteps. They want some assurance that when they're going to place their bets, they're really going to be able to focus on the quality of the product and what the product can achieve and do and help and how it can help patients rather than worrying about, did you make a mistake in the compliance world? Seth, I'm so glad you brought that up because I often try to communicate that reputational damage will be exponentially more than any finer penalty and that wherever you want to be above the fold on the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, or Financial Times is not it. Let me turn to some broader healthcare compliance questions and ask you, what do you see as two or three of the top issues as we move into Q1 of 2024? Well, we saw in 2023 a lot around the mechanics and by that, the pleadings, the elements of false claims and anti-kickback cases. I think we're going to continue to see that percolate through the system. But I think more, more importantly for most compliance officers and compliance programs is we saw an awful lot of guidance that came out right at the end of the year in 2023. It seems like the government saves up its guidance presents for us as sort of Christmas presents and we get them around the holidays. So we saw the OIG, HSOIG update for the first time in 20 20 years, its compliance program guidance. Now they haven't done it specifically for life sciences, but they have issued their general guidance. And And I have to say, if anybody hasn't read it, they should. They've done a really good job of making improvements and making it more user-friendly and more accessible and readable. You get a very good idea of where they're going. We saw a lot of guidance coming out at the end of the year from FDA, both for laboratory-developed tests and and labeling and advertising. We've seen certainly efforts by the FTC to clean up the orange book. So there's an awful lot of regulatory guidance and regulations that are still coming down the pike that compliance officers are going to need to understand, they're going to need to take a look at, and then they're going to need to see what adjustments, if any, do they need to make to their compliance programs. It's going to be a busy 2024, I think. Seth, what is the FTC Orange Book? I meant the FDA orange book, but the FTC is sent a letters to a number of pharmaceutical manufacturers saying you have patents listed in the orange book that shouldn't be there. You need to get them out because they see them as a block to generic competition. One of the things that we hold in common is you are or have been a contributed contributor to the HCCA healthcare manual. Could you tell us about your contributions to that August work? I was fortunate to be involved in two sections. One is writing the history of healthcare compliance programs. I think I got chosen because I go back 30 years to the the very beginnings and we've been able to see it through for three decades now. Um, The other piece that I wrote came out of my work that I did uh, in the opioid MDL case as an ex-compliance expert for the plaintiffs. 
uh, I wrote the section on um, opioids and diversion. And the let me turn now to one of the topics I've been trying to focus on for the past several months, and that's data-driven compliance. At least from the Department of Justice's perspective, this has moved from cutting edge to best practices, and by the end of the year, it may be table stakes. But at the end of the year, we had a, a very prominent a speech by a prominent acting assistant attorney general on the need for compliance programs to be data-driven. Is Do you see that in the healthcare? And if so, how do you see that direction going? I've, we've seen this trend going on for a number of years, Tom, as you said. I think it's becoming table stakes. Look, if you look at it from a 50,000-foot level, it makes a lot of sense. Basically, the government's position is if you have data, you should be using that data to inform your compliance program. Because obviously you can't do everything. So compliance is primarily based on a risk-adjusted basis. Where are the greatest risks? Where are the greatest gaps? And you need data to be able to inform those decisions. You can't just put your bill, I think we're okay. That's not good enough. You need to be able to show them, the government. You need to be able to show your board. You need to be able to show your senior executives that we are okay. And here's the information that backs up that belief that we are okay. So they're pushing us to use the data. And we have lots of data in-house that's available that we just don't necessarily take a look at. We also have a lot of external data. There's the whole open payments database. Not only can we look at it for our own payments, but we can look at how we stack up against others in the industry. Is that because compliance officers don't have access to the data? They don't know how to look at it? They don't have the tools to go through and find the anomalies, all of the above, none of the above, or something different? I think all of the above. I, I think we're developing the tools to be able to crunch the data. I think it it's also takes an awful lot of time and effort to figure out what's the, what data sets are relevant and what are not. We have, like I said, you go into any company, you have lots and lots of different data sets from HR data to sales and marketing data to research and development data to financial internal financial data. You need to pick and choose wisely as to where do you think, what data sets do you think are going to be relevant to informing whether or not you're hitting your compliance marks? And then you need to go crunch that data to say, okay, help me figure out if do we have outliers? How many outliers do we have? What do we need to do about those outliers? Seth, what do you see in terms of COs, finally, healthcare COs, or finally reporting directly to the board of directors independent of the general counsel? I've always thought it was a good idea. It doesn't solve the entire problem that the government was trying to get at, which is making sure that the chief compliance officer has the necessary support and is, in fact, listened to and has a seat at the table. It improves it, but it's not a guarantee. Again, you're still going to have, if you're going to report to the board of directors and you tell them there are issues, they may or may not listen to you. So that it's still a challenge of persuading the business folks, including the board, to understand that this is important and that they need to put wise investments into compliance. What do you see at this point of the role of AI in life science compliance? I think it has a lot of promise, Tom. Look, it, it's not perfect, and we know it, generate, it can generate errors 
So you have to be careful with it, but I do think it is an important tool that is going to become even more important as it gets refined for helping us answer those questions, look at big data sets, ultimately help us put out compliance communications more quickly with fewer resources. At the end of the day, we're going to be becoming editors in the sense that you have to take the output from your AI and you still have to put it through the, put it under scrutiny and under the microscope to make sure the answers you're getting are right and the information that you're getting is accurate. We're moving more from being creators to being editors. Let me turn to an initiative that uh, you may have uh, ongoing or perhaps down the road. That's the Journal of Life Science Compliance and Regulatory Practice. Could you tell us a little bit about that initiative that uh, you put together? Yeah, I'm working on, as I mentioned earlier, Policy Medicine Compliance Update was essentially the only academic level journal that we had for compliance professionals. Unfortunately, it has ceased publication, so now we have a gap. I am trying to fill the gap by creating the and launching the journal to step back into that space because as I have talked to a number of my colleagues, there's still a need for context-driven, detail-driven understanding of compliance changes and updates and government initiatives, et cetera, that they need to be able to work through to inform and obviously make their programs effective in every sense of that word. So the journal's goal here is to provide that necessary context and also to help them sort through all the noise out there. There There are so many blogs. There are so many client alerts. There are so many announcements that come out. It's impossible to really read everything. Compliance officers don't have the time. They're busy enough as it is. So what we're trying to do is distill the important things, distill the various and different positions or thoughts about it and give them the best available evidence to work from to be able to, you know, improve their compliance programs. So it's an ongoing initiative. We're still in the process of setting it up and thinking through all the issues that go along with how do you do this? But that's the goal. The goal is to step back into that space that we now have a we now have a gap, and I believe still a need. Seth, let me ask you to perhaps put on your Karnak the Magnificent hat and look down the road. Uh, I'm glad I knew you'd get that reference. Healthcare compliance. Uh, I was going to say 2025, but guess what? That's next year. So I'm going to say mid-century. Although I'm not sure I want to use that phrase. 2030 and beyond. Where do you see uh, your work going and life science compliance going? Look, I, Tom, no, ma- no matter what we come out with from an AI perspective or a technology perspective, AI 2.0, 3.0, 4.0, it doesn't really matter. There's still going to be a need for compliance officers uh, and compliance programs. Companies need to have that check and a balance. It's like our government. We provide an important sanity check, balance check to help the company navigate its objectives, achieve its objectives, putting safe and effective products out there on the market 
and doing so in a compliance, compliant fashion and addressing, and obviously some of our work is generated from the government, a lot of it is, and a lot of that work comes about because of critics of our industry. And if we look at the critics serious and take them seriously, they may not have the right incomplete understanding, and I wouldn't necessarily expect them to, but at the same time, those criticisms are valid. Look, drug prices are very high. But we're not a soundbite either that it's the fault of the greedy pharmaceutical manufacturers. They're solely responsible for it. No, our complex healthcare system is partially responsible for it. We have a partial responsibility in how we set prices. We don't do a really good job of explaining how those prices get set. We need to do a better job of that. That's an area where compliance can help focus the company into thinking about how do we address these issues? And how do we prevent problems from happening before they actually occur? Because ultimately, at the end of the day, setting aside your, the legal issues and the fines and the penalties, at the end of the day, compliance issues are a huge distraction for any company. You're focusing on dealing with those issues, and you're not focusing on what your main mission and objective are, which is putting cutting-edge, safe and effective medicines out there in the hands of patients. So if we can reduce those distractions, in which I think we serve a purpose and we will continue to serve the purpose of doing so, then I think we add value to our companies. Seth, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode. But before we leave, I wanted to ask you if our listeners wanted more information on yourself or any of the topics we've touched on today, what might be the best place or places for them to go? You can go to my website, whitelawcompliance.com. You can email me at swhitelaw at whitelawcompliance.com. You can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, Tom, I'm hiding in plain sight, so I'm pretty easy to find. Uh, If anybody wants more information or wants help, you can reach me through a variety of different ways. Seth, I wanted to thank you again for taking the time to visit with me, and I hope we can continue this conversation. I would love to, Tom. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. As I mentioned at the start of this podcast, this podcast network is sponsored by Ethico for the month of March. I have paired with Ethico to help you with the ROI of your compliance program. I've written a white paper which details some of the calculations you can go through to determine ROI. And Ethico has put together a ROI calculator. We've linked to the site on our show notes, so check out if you're interested in determining the ROI of your compliance program. The award-winning FCPA Compliance Report is the longest-running podcast in compliance. Uh, Thanks for visiting with us, and I hope to visit with you again next week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.